Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, and I'm here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. So, Max, uh, this Ariana Grande concert, uh, literally news just came out, I guess, in the last hour or something yeah, like that? We, yeah, basically just before I got on the go bus. I was scrolling through Twitter and seeing this pretty tragic stuff. So, terrible, terrible news. We don't have a lot of details at all because it's pretty much just happened, but 19 people are dead in Manchester and over 50 are injured. Um, and Those know, numbers might change. They might change. Yeah. Uh, we don't know the cause yet. We don't know anything. But obviously, it's just a, a pretty tragic thing when, you know, you think of the type of people that go to an Ariana Grande concert, it's going to be kids. Yeah, because, um, you know, I saw Ariana Grande. The reason why I kind of wanted to just talk about it briefly a little bit is that I went to her concert in Toronto about, th- uh, I want to say maybe a month ago with Lauren. And... Um, I was really struck just by the uh, diversity in the crowd. You know, there's definitely a lot of kids there. Like when I, when I say kids, I mean 11-year-olds, 13-year-olds that are maybe there with their parents. There's definitely 16-year-olds uh, that are there with a group of friends who are maybe like, you know, going out to one of their first concerts. Yeah, just thinking about, um, you know, all the people there who are, you know, whose families are like literally still looking for them right now. I know that on Twitter there's been, um, you know, people are posting photos and, uh, you know, just trying to get in touch with their loved ones. So, you know, um, it made me think cause they still don't know the cause, but they're treating it like a terrorist act mm-hmm. until they get further, um, information. And the thing about stuff like this where, you know, uh, an explosion goes off at a concert or a sporting event it's terrorism at its most heinous and its most effective, meaning they want to take away the things that make people happy in a sort of free and open society uh, so that you start questioning uh, whether or not you want to go to something like a concert or, uh, you know, a soccer game. And that is literally sort of terror at its sort of uh, most effective. Yeah, it reminded me of not only the stuff that happened in Paris or the Battle Clan, but also uh, the movie theater in uh was it denver it was in colorado colorado yeah um and that was for, was it dark night was it was it? a dark night movie yeah yeah and just how you you know there are these spaces that you you think are space the safe and that you want to feel really safe in and share this sort of communal activity that ought to bring you a lot of joy for you as a concert goer like you said you're just at the ariana grande concert in toronto and also a performer how much do you think this will make you think about, I guess, safety going forward? Or is it something that you don't carry with you? Uh, I've never really thought about it in the context of an Art Kells concert, to be honest. But the thought did cross my mind, actually, when we were at Coachella. Because I did see, um, you know, those bomb-sniffing dogs and the amount of security and just, like, general, like, yeah. law enforcement. In a very subtle way. That, um, But... Yeah, you know that, that definitely. If if the aim is to cause terror, you know, that that's a pretty you know that that would be a place to start. Uh, is like at a concert when people are trying to enjoy something together. Our thoughts are with all of the people who are affected tonight um, and maybe lost somebody or you can't find somebody. And when this airs, obviously on Wednesday we'll have more information. But uh, yeah, but we want to touch on that because you know the Arkells have toured in Manchester. I just saw an Ariana Grande concert and. Uh, yeah, it's definitely sort of part of the community that we're part of, which is, you know, arts and entertainment and, and, uh, touring musicians and, and large scale productions. And, you know, we, we all know somebody who knows somebody who's probably living in that world right now. Yeah. Okay, Max, let's shift gears. Um, today on the show, we have ESPN's Zach Lowe. 
Yes, and we are going to perk up for this because this is something as, as devastating as the stuff is going on right now. We are very excited to, to, to have Zach on the program. We were both huge, huge Zach Lowe fans. And now for listeners that maybe are a little bit like, oh, a writer, an ESPN writer, a basketball writer, um, you know, normally we have musicians or actors or directors or whomever. Uh, but this one actually was probably a bigger deal for both of us than anyone else we've had on the show. Yeah, it was like maybe Commander Chris Hadfield, the astronaut. Yeah, and then Zach Lowe. Only because he has nineteen PhDs. But after that, <laughs> Zach Lowe, it was surreal. Honestly, I wasn't there for this interview, but you sent me the raw audio, and I was on tour, and I listened to it in my bunk, and I was just thinking to myself, "This is the coolest slash weirdest slash most yeah surreal." thing to listen to your voice, a voice that I'm around all the time, and Zach Lowe's voice, uh, who hosts a podcast that I never miss an episode for. You listen to everyone. Everyone. Hear the two of you going back and forth. It was well, so cool. It's funny because it's like after interviewing Zach Lowe now, you know, you realize he's just, he's just a dude. He's a total dude that just goes about his work, does his job. So I even think about him listening to us right now, geeking out, and just being like, I've made a huge mistake going on that show. Yeah, I know. <laughs> These guys are total fanboys. Uh, but the truth is, it's like, for both of us, like... I love the NBA. I talk about it on this podcast all the time. Like that is my, that's my hobby. That's where I go to when I just want to like unwind. It's like, I want to throw in a basketball game and just sort of get lost. And so you end up kind of becoming a big part of the culture of the NBA. And so you have like, you're kind of like, you're more prominent, uh, writers and, you know, honor personalities, you get into the NBA universe. And Zach is a huge part of that. And one of the smartest writers, and we just both love reading him and listening to his show. Yeah. Sports is definitely for, I think for both of us who happen to have like some of the best jobs you could ever hope for. Like, you know, yeah, we're doing all right. Like like we, I get to play in a rock and roll band. You get to produce and write for television. Like those are dream jobs, but even for people in dream jobs who like to have a little bit of escapism, the the NBA is our escapism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, for anyway, so before you, those of you who aren't into basketball, turn off this podcast. I want to set up our fandom and why you might be interested in this conversation. And if you are into the NBA, then obviously you're saying, can you please shut the hell up and just get to skip to the interview? interview. <laughs> yeah. But the interview is just look in the, uh, the notes on It'll the podcast. It'll where it starts. Yeah. But um, so for me as a basketball fan, um, I started at a very young age. And I kind of want each of us to talk about our love for basketball just for a second. Sure. Um, my gym teacher... Uh, his name is Mr. Nicholson, ended up being, uh, he was the uncle for Jamal McGlure, who's one of Canada's most prominent basketball players. So when I was like six years old, I knew about this guy named Jamal McGlure, who was a Toronto high school phenom, Mm -hmm. who later went to University of Kentucky, one of the best programs, and then made the NBA. And he had like a, what? He became an all-star. An all-star. He played for, I want to say 12 years, 12, 13 years. He's still involved with the Toronto Raptors. And as a kid, as like a 10-year-old, my dad and I went to go see Jamal McGlure play at Eastern Commerce, which was the high school he went to, which was a powerhouse in Toronto. (laughs) And I told my mom as a 10-year-old, like, mom... I'm going to go to Eastern Commerce for high school. And she said, no, you're not. It's out of district, and you won't make the team anyway. And I'm like, there's a pretty good chance I'll make the team. Anyway, I didn't go to Eastern Commerce. I definitely wouldn't have made the team, but I did play on my high school basketball team, and we weren't, weren't particularly good, but I did get some playing time as a result of uh, sort of the low level of talent. And then when I was about, I want to say, 12 or 13, Vince Carter came upon us. Uh, came into our lives. Came into our lives. And uh, and my first email address was Vince un- underscore Kerman at Hotmail.com. 
if and listeners email that tonight, will you? Can you still get into that? No, email address? I don't think it's like working anymore. All right, but I uh, I was obsessed with Vince Carter. It got to the point where I have a memory of being twelve years old, just like one afternoon, nothing in particular was happening, and I just started crying on my parents' couch because. I didn't think I'd ever get a chance to meet Vince Carter. Just like, <laughs> that thought know. just hit you yeah, and you had to have a good started, cry. Yeah, which kind of speaks to like how good I had it as a kid. Like if these were my problems. But then I got really lucky because my dad uh, signed me up for the Vince Carter basketball camp. And there I got to stand about 10 feet away from Vince Carter. He came to the last day of camp. And that was a huge thrill. Um, later, uh, actually it was probably around the same time, I needed to do a project on a member of my community. That was like, uh, you know, you have to go out and find someone and interview them. And so what I decided to do was interview the general manager of the Toronto Raptors. And this is like kind of before anybody used email or anything. So basically, I just called the Toronto Raptors up, like at the head <laughs> office. I was like, hello, is um, Mr. Glenn Grunwald there? They're like, yeah, sure, one second. <laughs> Got through right to his office. He picks up the phone. This is like back in 1999. So it seemed like anything was possible back then, I guess. And uh, I said, hey, Mr. Glenn Grunwald, can I do an interview uh, on you? Because uh, I need to interview someone in my community. And he said, okay. And then I got an interview. And I have uh, photos with him. So uh, shouts to Glenn Grunwald. And now he went on to be the general manager slash president of the New York Knicks. That's right. And now he works at McMaster University, my alumni. He's so uh, he's, he's in the neighborhood. So we should have him on. What? Ooh, he'd be amazing, actually. Yeah, that's a great idea. We can't hit our listeners with too much sports in a row. Okay, Glenn Grunwald, we're coming for you. So, but but that's my basketball story. So I hope that pumped you up a little bit. For this interview. <laughs> what's your What's your? Uh, how did you fall in love with hoops? Okay, so I, uh, as a young young man, like as a kid, like you know when you're like whatever nine ten, I loved hockey. And my brother and I would wake up every morning. We'd watch Sports Desk, which was like the kind of sports center of the time, and we'd eat our cereal. And I loved the Montreal Canadiens. Then when I got around like. 13, 14, I kind of want, I got into music. I want to start a band, meet some babes, you know, like <laughs> my priorities shifted and I basically gave up sports. I was like, I'm man, jocks, that's not where it's at. Like I'm out on sports and I left sports for a good long while. And then after I kind of came out of that, I started hearing rumblings like, oh, like the next Michael Jordan's playing, you know, in Toronto, you know, just down the street because I'm in Hamilton at the time. And here's the thing. I wasn't even really into Michael Jordan during the Michael Jordan era. Like I didn't, I was out, man. And so I heard that. I'm like, that's interesting. So I ended up kind of casually watching some basketball, like because this Vince Carter guy was playing and obviously he's like pretty spectacular. I like to call Vince my gateway drug because (laughs) once I started watching the game, I was like, this sport is the best sport of all time on every possession there's the potential for something spectacular to happen it's like violent ballet like i loved it i loved everything about the way it moved and then you start to learn you know you get to kind of like learn the game as you go and then once you really get into it all the characters it's like a living movie like the nba is the best sport just to follow from pure comedy just because the league is so ridiculous and the, the community around the nba is so fun and smart yeah. And diverse. It's very cool. And the characters are so rich. You know what I mean? Like how often is there some sort of feud or something like that? But anyway, so we're very excited to have Zach Lowe on this podcast. I hope that sets up this interview. And I sh- and we talk about Zach's kind of work ethic. We talk about how he became a sports writer in the first place, what the ins and outs of his job look like, what his day looks like. So for people who are just interested in what it's like to work in the media, this is a really good interview because uh, he works for 
ESPN, which is you know one of the biggest media media companies, period, uh, in the world, and um, it should give you some insight into like what life is like in that industry. We'll get to it. Let's do it. So, how you been? You're in Toronto quite a bit. I'm in Toronto quite a bit. My in-laws are here. Uh, I spent uh, about an hour in traffic yesterday, coming back from the airport to their suburban locale, <laughs> longer than the flight from Cleveland. But traffic here just gets worse and worse every time I come. It's I like a nightmare. It's pretty bad. I budgeted two hours this morning to get from their house in North York yeah, yeah. Uh, to the arena, a trip I've made in 45 minutes before. What did it take you today? Uh, there was a moment where I thought I might not make it even in two hours because the subway was so slow, but I got, it was like an hour and 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you made it. I made it. Yeah. I made it. All right. So, I mean, on this pod, we like to sort of get into the minutia of people do their work, sort of sure. how they got where they got. And so I kind of wanted to start, um, your dad is a legendary high school swim coach. Wow. You did some background. I did. I read an article, uh, in the Greenwich uh, newspaper mm-hmm. about your dad when he was retiring. It was a really nice piece that yeah. you actually tweeted out, I think last year or the year before. Yeah. I liked it. He's not on Twitter. So. So he doesn't know that I don't think he knows what Twitter is. So he doesn't see anything like that. Um, and you were obviously a high school teacher. Yes. I guess my question would be, how has your upbringing helped shape your work ethic as a writer um, or in general, really? I don't know that I have that unusual of a work ethic. This is a hard job, but I mean, I just, I, I remember, you know, my dad, was a teacher is is a retired teacher yeah. and um he coached two sports he coached water polo and he coached swimming both like massively successful he's in every like high school coaching hall of fame there is and i just didn't really appreciate until i became a teacher the difficulty of teaching from nine to three uh prepping classes like i didn't realize that teachers had to like prepare like you actually have to like figure <laughs> out what you're going to do you with these children for sort of an hour it. um yeah uh, which to me, that was the hardest part of teaching, actually figuring out what the hell we were going to do the next day or two days later. So to teach from nine to three, then there's like a half hour break, then practice starts and it's like 3.36, then you go home, then you have to like prep for the next day of teaching. And if I wanted help on my math homework, I was like this bratty little kid who was like, I need help. Like I, I just now, like I need help right now. And I didn't have any appreciation for He's got 9,000 things. He's got to prep for the swim meet tomorrow. He's got to prep for his class. He's got to grade papers. And I became a teacher, and 3 o'clock would roll around, and I just wanted to die every day you were because done. I was so tired. I just wanted to take a nap on my desk. And just just the mere thought of preparing for the next day was overwhelming. And I didn't coach a team, and I didn't have practice, and I didn't have anything like that. And like so I, somewhere along those lines, like my mom – is just as hard of a worker. I just sort of a job somewhere. I just sort of by osmosis, you just you just figure out like to do your job well. That's what it is. Did you go into teaching because your dad had been in it? Probably. And and my mom was a, an English teacher who became a social worker. So both public school, oh. um, both public school teachers slash administrators growing up. I kind of went into teaching because I didn't know what the hell else to do. I was a history major in college and everyone would, you know, all, you go home from college and all your family friends that you have, like you have these mandatory <laughs> things that you have to go to be like, oh, so history major, you're going to go to law school? And I'd be like, no, why, why is that? Like, where's the, why is that point A to point B? And I just liked to read and think and write. And then 
I had to get a job and I was like, I don't know what the hell I want to do. I like kids. I liked, I had coached in the summers and stuff. So I like being around kids. I was like, I'll, I'll try this. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Totally unqualified. Should never have been hired. <laughs> um, and by the second year I got good at it. And I think I would have been a good high school teacher had I stuck with it. And I just, life didn't turn out that way. So you start thinking about making a jump to reporting. You were doing crime reporting. Yeah, there's a little step in between that maybe is not interesting. But yeah, I, just, I got into my mid-20s and I said, let's try this journalist thing. Right. Was that a hard leap to make? Was it hard to sort of get into that business? Like, how do you just shift careers? Because once you're sort of established, it's hard to maybe... You don't really. Like, I, I was a grad student at the time and um, I was a, a history student getting a master's PhD. And I was I just was like, this is not what I want to do. Right. Like, like, I don't want to sit in archives by myself and read these, like, documents from the 1800s. Um, let me do some, like, similar skills, but, like, stuff that people actually care about, stuff where I get to interact with, like, actual humans. And that was journalism. And I was 25 or 26 or something. And, like, you don't that's just not how you get into journalism. Like yeah. you would, I would call newspapers and they'd be like, did you write for the college paper? No. Do you have an internship on your resume at a newspaper? No, nothing. I'm like this weirdo trying to transition. Into, I'm just going to give it a go. Yeah. And I, you can't do that. So I ended up taking out a whole bunch of student loans and going to journalism school and for a year, it's just a one year program. And got okay at it and got a newspaper job and that was all of a sudden like what i did and then you shift over to was it sports illustrated sports illustrated i yeah lebron got me and a lot of other people hired right um uh because after the decision when he went to miami the response was so overwhelming that a lot of publications were like we need more people covering this sport immediately. It caught people off guard and sports illustrated was one of those publications. And I knew the right person who knew the right person. That's interesting how like, you know, someone like LeBron makes a decision and literally this high tide rises all boats. Like it's it sort of, it, it transcends basketball and becomes a story that I guess everybody becomes interested in. Yeah. And if you look back, I mean, there are a lot of writers who transition from scrappy part-time freelancing on the side about basketball to full-time. This games. is my job now. Yeah, the heat right, index. Right. Yeah. He didn't like right around August, 2010, I got offered a job at the heat index and it like, it was the heat index for sports illustrated. And then I ended up going to sports illustrated, but that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, Getting into your, your writing, you know, you sort of have this gift for obviously combining like analytics with like a cerebral and entertaining style of longer form writing. And I mean, it's like really connected with NBA audiences, obviously. Um, I don't know about that, but I'll take it. But it's uniquely like Zach Lowe, like you have a style like unto your own self. Was that style like a conscious choice? Did you see sort of like a hole in the market where you could sort of fill it? Or is it something you just did naturally? Step one was a conscious choice. Step one was... I'm doing. I'm freelancing about basketball in my free time in the evenings. Mm-hmm. I have, cannot get credentials to games. I'm not a reputable <laughs> basketball writer, so I can't get interviews. I can't do anything like journalism-like. And so what can I do? I can describe what's going on in the game. I can describe the X's and O's. I can learn that because I don't need to be at the game to do that. And I did think it was like a little bit of an inefficiency where people – basketball like the the actually what was going on on the court was not understood well enough i didn't think and some people some other people were trying to do it too and i was like that's that's the only way in i got that's the only way that i can make my work stand out if i can explain 
why the Celtics are using this pick and roll coverage and then why they changed it and I can do it in a way that's readable, like that might be something to hold on to. Was there some pushback maybe in that style or from editors where you're like, people aren't willing to go on this long of a journey or get this in depth? I didn't really have editors then, so I could do just doing. I thing. could do what I want. I mean, certainly, I still hear that now. I mean, I still hear, you know, do do people care this much about X, Y, and Z? And I'm sometimes I definitely go over the line in detail, and like I have a maybe not the best feel for what what's interesting. Um, and I have editors now who will pull me back, or or sometimes say, "No, actually, your instincts are right. Look, let's go down this rabbit hole and see where it goes." What does your day look like? I mean, how much is consuming other writing? other podcasts, having conversations with NBA personnel? All of it. Every day is kind of crazy. Um, Is it like on the phone constantly? No, it depends. It depends on the day. Like for instance, during the playoffs, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of, um, not a lot, but I've had several sources text me the last few days being like, what are you hearing about Orlando's GM job? What are you hearing hearing about the Hawks? You know, can I get in there? Whatever. And I say like during the playoffs, like I I just like, I'm not on the phone as much. I'm not texting as much. I don't have my ear to the ground because I got to watch all these games and in the first round that's three games a night usually and now it's two games a night but like i watching a playoff game is different for me than watching a regular season game i take a lot of notes it takes me much longer i probably watch a playoff game in two hours versus a regular season game i can knock out in an hour and ten will you do the full thing on league pass the full game when in the regular season every uh, game that happened i go that night? tip off to garbage time that's my rule okay. so I, and i root for garbage time garbage time is a plus for me that's um, funny yeah so so yeah it, it just it sort of depends on the year you know the more i watch the less i have time to do to do other stuff yeah I, for my league pass i kind of wake up in the morning and i'll watch the last 5 minutes of the teams around the league like raptors front to back yeah cuz you know i'm a bleeding heart homer but uh, the rest of the games tend to get the last 5 minutes if they're close yeah, and I've had many people, editors, saying, you know, what would make your life easier is if you just did that. And I've tried it, and it just it doesn't. It's not the way I. It's not the way I consume the game. So well, it's, it's not the way I do it. It speaks to how thorough you are. Yeah, the fact that you're putting in that work. You know, I, well, I, and I, it means I watch fewer, fewer. Like I get pieces of fewer games. Like so, I do two games a night start to garbage time instead of six crunch times you know got I mean? you yeah. oh so you'll only pick two of the six that night yeah two of the whatever yeah yeah did you read that piece the long form on ernie johnson i have not yet I that have was not fast yet. his yeah. process is still pretty old school it's in my it's in my like list of things to read do you what? consume a lot of other writers i do in your day today yeah um i it, it it again it changes it's probably less than it used to be because i have other commitments that have taken more of my time but for every game i don't watch I try, so that can sometimes be on a busy Wednesday, that could sometimes be nine games. On a quiet Thursday, that could be two. Um, I try to read um, one writer who I think is the best writer covering each of the two teams involved, their their summary of the game. And sometimes that's a blogger, sometimes that's a beat writer, sometimes it's whatever. But like, so if the Bucks play the Raptors and I didn't see it, I want Raptors Republic and I want like Brew Hoop or something like that. I want to, so that's, that's how I consume that that i consume a lot of that and obviously you know the big stories of the day sort of emerge and you read them journalism can be pretty competitive especially sports journalism and you know i think some writers can be like shit i didn't get that scoop where do you fall on that spectrum are you like hey we're all in this we're all reporting or are you hyper competitive when it comes to that sort of thing Luckily, breaking news is not the basis of my job. Of course. So but, I mean, you still do kind of – you it, get nuggets. I get know? nuggets. I'm glad you noticed. Um, I try to break news in a little bit of a different way, um, but it's not – like, I don't I – don't, I am not one of the people who's pulling my hair out when Woj tweets yesterday <laughs> about Mike Budenholzer stepping down from the Hawks. Like, yeah. that's – like, I don't – that's that's 
he's the best at that. Yeah. I can't compete with that. I'm not going to get that story, and that's cool. But sometimes I'm on a story, and 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 there there are stories that I'm on that take time to report, and I need to get them right, and they're sensitive. So you know, I may know something right now that I is true, but to really report the story, I need to call four or five different people to confirm it, flesh it out. And I need one person who's telling me it to give me the go ahead to make those four or five calls. And I'm waiting for that. And I know like someone else is going to hear this and get the green light sooner. Who knows? And so sometimes I have stories and it, and it, and it eats at me a little bit. There sure. was one recently that really got me. Uh, but Would you share it? Yeah. Uh, when the jazz GM went on Woj's podcast and Lindsay, Dennis Lindsay, Dennis Lindsay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Spilled the beans about Utah's concerns that they're officiated unfairly. Ah. Um, I had been, I'm not going to say sitting on that, but sitting around that for a while, like three or four months. And it was it was partly my fault because I just sort of let it linger. It was so sensitive for the Jazz that I was like, I just, I'm going to wait until they sort of feel like it's the right time to follow up. And I didn't, I didn't follow up diligently enough. But when that came out, that that was that one was a punch to the gut. I mean, have you ever had a source or a subject legitimately pissed off at you after oh, a story? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Does it just come with the territory? Unfortunately, yes. It's an unpleasant part of the job. I guess anecdotally, what was maybe the worst one? You don't have to name names, but if you'd like to, I'm down. Um, just, you know, if you know too much about a team, they get upset. If you know too much about, if you know too much about trade talks they've had, um, and you report it and you, even if you tell them what you should do, that you're going to report it and give them a chance to respond and all that. It's just, they just don't like a lot of their business out there. So any column where there's a lot of their business out there, um, they don't tend to like it very much. You get a call personally? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's, but, but everyone is, it's, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it gets tense and you go have your ups and downs, but it's always, it's like professional. It's not, it's sure. not, you know, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's never too personal because ultimately you're all, this is your jobs. Yeah. I mean, certainly some relationships will go on their ups and downs, yeah. you know, over time, but it's, yeah, it's never, you know. A lot of your business is like making these personal connections, making sure you're connected. How natural I guess, was it for you to, to interact and schmooze and sort of like build these bridges? Is that something you had to develop or you, were you sort of always able to connect with it's, people? I'm a decent schmoozer. Um, I like, <laughs> I like to talk. I always like my wife and I have these are my wife hates networking. She's like, I hate networking. To me, networking is just networking is a bad word. Networking is like, I, I always tell her, just think of it as you are meeting a stranger who's interesting and it, probably in a related field like you might be friends with this person in a different life just think of it as like a fun social conversation and like there's an 80 percent chance it goes really well and there's a 20 percent chance you've wasted an hour but who cares like it's so i i i like meeting new people i like dinner i like beer i like coffee i like all the things that center around these conversations so it's it's easy for me ironically the reason i didn't get into journalism when i was younger is because i was super shy and not good at that at all. And if you had told me that when I turned, you know, when I got into my late twenties, I'd be good at it. I, my 18 year old self would have been like, no way. Like, that's why I couldn't, I couldn't knock on doors and have conversations with strangers and all that stuff you have to do. Yeah. What do you think changed? I don't know. I got older and it's more comfortable in more yourself comfortable and, and yeah. more secure or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I couldn't do it when I was 18, 19. I had friends. I was normal in that sense, but like there's a, 
there's that and then there's talking to strangers and and like I wasn't good at that. I was a, a huge fan of uh, Grantland, as I think a lot of people were. Um, and as years like passed, I think the legend of Grantland sort of grows and grows. I think it's become this. I mean, it always was this great thing. You were like a musician that died too young, or exactly. Something. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's almost good for us in retrospect. Yeah, that it went too soon, so then it will always sort yeah. of be evergreen for people. Um, I guess I want to ask, like, what are Bill Simmons' strengths as like an, an editor and a creative, and what made that site special to you? He hires good people and i'm not talking about me i mean you just look at the you know, bill barnwell jonah carey i mean you could go on and on the, the music writers the pop culture look at the people he's discovered jason concepcion network he's, he's hilarious he's, shea serrano shea serrano yeah. is a best-selling new york times best-selling author shea serrano i mean think about that yeah. three or four years ago that was not a possible thing um and he just I, he has faith in people to do well when given space and a responsibility like he doesn't micromanage you know, the reason he hired me was like, he said, I mean, he said this publicly before. He said, you know, you're writing three or four times a day at Sports Illustrated. There's only, the ceiling on your work is only so high when you have to write that much. The ceiling on how good each individual thing can be. Like, I have faith that you could do really good work if we wrote three times a week instead of three times a day. And you're going to have some learning curve and some screw ups, but like, let's see what happens. And he just sort of... He has faith in people to do their jobs and 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 uh, and sort of play up to responsibility instead of instead of uh, or freedom. Sort of like you know the, he he has faith in people's ability to function and work hard if given freedom instead of sort of relaxing and and being lazy. Did you read him before? Oh, of course. Yeah. So you were since a fan college. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like everybody has a major like Simmons phase. He rarely writes anymore, but well, I I I I mean I remember. Where I was when I got an, e an email from him popped up in my inbox, and I thought my first response to my now wife was that someone had someone was playing a prank on me, <laughs> that it wasn't a real a real thing. It was like a fake email handle. Yeah, I thought someone has just gotten one of my friends to be a jerk has gotten this you know fake email, and it's, it's this whole thing introducing himself as fake. I thought it was all fake. Well, that's fascinating because that's kind of like that's that's a I guess a big moment. Someone that you read has a platform reaches out to you. What are you feeling in that moment? Are you thinking like shit? This is a huge opportunity. Like I'm kind of all in, or are you trepidatious, or are you like? Do you see him as a peer at that point, or are you kind of just oh, like... Oh, no, 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 no. I did not see him as a peer. I, I was excited. My natural state of mind is like, um, I will find a way to screw this up somehow. <laughs> and so that was that was next. And then probably panic about like, I don't really know how to handle this. Like, are, like what is Sports Illustrated going to say? And, and, you know, if we, if it gets down that far and... and but I'm mostly excited. When you were making the move, I mean, you got to stay in New York, right? So it wasn't yeah. going to be a life-changing move. But is that something that you – do you discuss all career stuff with your wife? Are you like, I'm thinking about this. I'm bouncing it off her. Oh, yeah. She and she um, – you say you marry your deficits. Like she is a very – I've never heard that. That's good. She is a very – like I'm cautious and pessimistic and um, anxious she is brave and courageous and strong. And she, I was like, look, honey, Grantland's only a year old. You know, Sports Illustrated is Sports Illustrated. It's, it's, it will never die. It's a titan. Grantland is this new thing. And, and she was like, she, you know, was like, this is Bill Simmons. Like, this is going to be all right. This is like a different kind of job for you. It'll be good. Like, it, have an adventure. Be adventurous. Go for it. And yeah. she pushed me over the edge. Um, that sounded bad. She pushed me over the edge. <laughs> she pushed me to take the job. Yeah. She pushed you in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, although you're a writer, you know, you, you do TV. Um, you have a podcast, great podcast. Um, and in modern media, it seems, I guess, all this stuff is kind of necessary if you're going to have a platform and grow your brand or whatever you want to call it. Talk about how you sort of adopted to this new model and, like, I guess what you enjoy about it and what's the most challenging. Uh, I did, did not. You, did you always want to be, like, on, on radio nope, or be a voice? I did not adopt to it. I was forced into it. David Jacoby, who I'm sure you have heard of from <laughs> Jalen and Jacoby, sure. called me one day and said, you know what I think we're going to do? We're going to have a Zach Lowe podcast. And I said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, I don't need an extra thing to do. And we argued about it good-naturedly for three or four months and finally i was like all right i'll write one less thing a week and i'll do a podcast because i knew how i was i knew that i wouldn't just wing it on a podcast that like i'd prepare and i would try really hard to get good guests and it would take time so i I eventually won that and really sucked at podcasting some people still think i really suck at (laughs) podcasting um but i've gotten better at it i got you know i get different kinds of guests and it's fun. I mean, I probably still over prepare, but it's it's. It, but yeah, I was sort of dragged kicking and screaming into like having my voice, actual my actual voice be out there. Yeah. Do you enjoy the TV stuff? Yeah, TV's fun. TV is like, it's harder than people think, but it's also it's also has this quality where like, it, and it and it's part of what makes TV a little troubling is to me is that. Not troubling, but the downside of it is that there's just so much of it that unless you say something grossly offensive or just unbelievably dumb, it, it's just forgotten almost immediately. And so that's that's sort of the thing that I grapple with. But TV's TV's hard, and it's also it's it's, it's really fun. Like particularly when you have a host like Rachel, who's really good. I yeah. love doing Rachel's show. Yeah. Sorry. Can you give us 10 minutes? Sure. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. No Thank you. Really appreciate it. What are we talking about? We're talking about TV. TV. Yeah, that's live. That you know that happens and you just got to roll with we it. We just kept going. Yeah. All right. I'll probably cut it out. Okay. Or maybe I'll keep it in. Who knows? <laughs> um so shifting gears a bit, like I work for a big media company called Bell Media. Yes. Um I think we own half of the Raptors or something like that and Leafs. Um about two years ago, we laid off about like 400 people, one of them being my brother who worked at the company. So, uh, you know, when I hear the ESPN news, it sort of like hits home for us a little bit. And I'm sorry to hear that because I'm sure you have colleagues and friends that all got hit pretty hard. It's not fun. No, it's 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 pretty brutal. And I guess my question would be the media landscape is changing so much. Like, where do you see it heading? Like, is there is there a good outcome? Boy, I feel like I've I've been a journalist for... 13 years and I think for all 13 of those years there has been like uncertainty hanging over our heads wherever I've been working the first newspaper I worked for was a Tribune company paper Tribune went bankrupt when I was there Uh, the second place I worked American Lawyer magazine just constantly has layoffs all the time Um, Sports Illustrated has had downsizes you know ESPN now it's I don't I don't know where I don't know what the end game is other than, you know, it, it everything seems to be trending to more video, more more, you know, social media, more all that, but I you know, I don't I mean I don't have my pulse on that kind of stuff. Right. Do you think it will just do you think it keeps shrinking? Do you think there is like sort of a lack? Do you think there isn't enough jobs to sort of fill what maybe it, it had in the it past. It does seem to be that way. And then but then you see some of the big publications like the Times seems to be hiring the Washington yeah. Post hired people. I mean, I, I do 
hopefully there's always a place for quality work but there yeah it does seem to be sort of a continuous i mean you have some papers that publish two or three times a week now they used to publish seven days a week so that you know requires fewer jobs it does seem to be sort of a continual shrinking and i say that not having researched it deeply right. but it it, do, it it does feel like there are just fewer and fewer jobs personally when you know something like you know the seismic shift that happened when bill was sort of ousted at Grantland, and then obviously what just happened at espn what are you, what's going through your mind when that kind of stuff happens or you see that or you start hearing rumors? Obviously, anxiety, you know, um, what's happening? What's behind it? Who's okay? Who's not okay? Am I okay? I mean, Grantland was a different thing be, because Bill was so central to what it was that when that happened, I again, I remember exactly where I was. I was in a hotel in Washington, D.C. It was May. It was the second round of the playoffs. Um, I was there to write about the Wizards, and I, I – was in my room and someone Richard Sandemir from the New York Times tweeted something about Bill um his contract not being renewed and my that was like I, are we all out of jobs immediately that was that was like is Grantland just dead now yeah. because he was so central to its presence this one was different and sort of long simmering and long rumored but yeah of course you know just anxiety what's happening you know who's who's what's is my job different do i have a job is the communication there, like, from the top down good, or are you reading these reports like everybody else? Like, for instance, there's, I mean, you don't have to speak to this, but the Deadspin piece about Woj coming over and, you know, did you read that at all? I did, and I'm not, I'm not, I am not going to speak on it, and I can honestly say I'm not qualified to speak on it. One of the, one of the good things about living in New York is that I'm not in Bristol, and I'm not in Los Angeles. Might be good and bad. I'm not, I'm, like, out of the loop, um... Which helps me answer this question, honestly, because I am out of the loop. But sometimes I think I need to be in the loop a little more, but I am out of the loop. Gotcha. Uh, lastly, and then I might hit you with one Raptors question. Oh, sure. I should. We haven't talked about the Raptors yet. I know. Well, you know, this, I want to know about Zach Lowe. And I feel like I get my Raptors uh, okay. fix from you in general. You're, you're very good about writing about them. I know that fans in places like Utah and Milwaukee and Toronto can be like, nobody writes about us. Uh, but which... Toronto has a different – Toronto, I call them the spooky molder toronto fans who think that who really i think a small segment of them really think that there is a vast conspiracy <laughs> against a canadian team that's yeah. so why i call them the spooky molder fans but yeah they're, they're always like there's always, like i i remember windhorse brian windhorse who's here right now wrote a big story about demar Derozan that was on the front page of espn.com for like all day <laughs> and even on that day i had raptors fans tweeting i'd be like oh when is the american media going to figure out that the raptors are going to play the american media has demar Derozan on the front page of its of its existence right now yeah yeah um sorry i got off on a rant no no i hear you i hear you um actually well now that we're talking about the raps do you think that Masai should uh resign kyle do you think he should throw the whole boat at him He's going to have to throw something close to the whole boat, I think. Um, but should he? Given what Kyle has done for the franchise. Um, you know, if they just get rolled right here, yeah, these next two games, if there's just no hope, if you come out of this series thinking the gap between us and LeBron is, so, is such a chasm, I don't know if it's Kyle or Serge or DeMar or or something but i just don't think you can bring back that whole group and pay 150 million dollars plus luxury tax for it I, I don't know who goes but um i don't i don't think i don't think you can bring back that whole group do you think you could bring back that group with a new voice a new coach yeah um 
Like, I don't think you can bring it all back. Like, I don't think you can bring the whole band back together if they get rolled, like I you said. I think Dwayne has done a good job here, and Dwayne just got extended, I, I think, think after last season. Three years left now uh, after this. And, and that doesn't stop teams when they want to make changes. I mean, we, we say that, you know, and, and there's, there are teams that are paying three or four coaches at once sometimes in the NBA because they fire everybody. But um, <laughs> I don't – I it this does not strike me as a situation where the coaching is what's separating them from the Cavs. Now, we'll see how they play. We said this last year, and they won two games at home. This doesn't feel like that will happen again, but you never know. You never know. All right, I'm going to finish uh, with a question about writing in the sense that your peers have gone on to write books, most recently Windhorse, who just mentioned. Yeah. Um, Abrams. Uh, Abrams is is a beast. Yeah. Simmons obviously has written a few books. Uh, is writing a book of your own on the radar for you? Is it in the future? Do you think no. about it? No. no, not having it. I actively, I think about it and then I actively do not want to do it. <laughs> uh, it seems like an enormous amount of work. And if I was going to do it, I would do it like Abrams has done it, where you sort of, you, you, you drop not everything because he's written a few features over the last year or so, but where you drop a lot. And that becomes how you spend all your time. Like I just, I can't imagine what someone like Jonah did writing a book while also covering baseball full time at Grantland, or what Brian did covering the Cavs, and Brian and Dave McMenamin yep, covering yep. the Cavs, and then in the summer after they win the title, covering NBA free agency and writing a book and all that at the same time. I just, I that doesn't that doesn't fit well with me that with my lifestyle. So I don't, I also don't have a good idea for a book. So right now, not on the radar. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, Zach. I really no problem, it, man. man. My pleasure. Welcome to the desserts. Our friend and pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham, literally just walked into Max's house and sat down. Welcome to the studio slash dining room. Shane, what's going on? Hey, I'm a little, uh, out of sorts, and Max might know why. I don't. I'm not sure if Michael know why. I don't know. I don't know why. Well, uh, well there's actually two reasons, but one of them is it's this is the Bachelorette right now. <laughs> That's oh, right. Well, the Bachelorette's on right now. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, the premiere episode. I'm right. part of a pool actually. With uh, so I didn't even tell you about this, Shane, but uh, Jared <laughs> from uh, Letterkenny asked uh, asked me to be in his uh, Bachelorette pool. Why? No, but why is he asking you? <laughs> Are you friends with him? Yeah, we've hung a couple How? times. How? He, he came to our Montreal show. Former podcast. Former podcast. Is he a fan? I think so. Mm. And uh, he's a really nice guy. Eh? Super nice guy. Like you, he literally says please and thank you in the same sentence. <laughs> you notice that? He'll order a drink. He'll be like, uh, "Can I? Can I have a Caesar, please? And thank you." <laughs> One of those. Yeah. <laughs> he, do you notice he does that? Uh, no, I've never picked that up. That but was, I believe yeah. it. Hey Max, do you want to be in uh, my bachelorette pool? Please and thank you. <laughs> Get an invitation. That's what, what, who, who are you picking? Uh, we did. I even forget who. Lauren and I are doing a team together, and uh, I forgot who we choose, chose. How much money do you win if you get it? I don't even know those details. Okay. Uh, and the, the other reason I'm a lot of sorts, I actually had like a kind of harrowing experience just now. Like, just I'm now? still like shaken up from it, actually. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of crazy. Like, um, <laughs> okay. So. You know, uh, Mike and I have a boss, you know, Randall. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's he's really nice guy, but he's also kind of intimidating. Right. So <laughs> we go up, we go up to his cottage and I kind of I'm not I'm not saying I'm on my best behavior, but I definitely don't want to like fuck anything up or ruffle any feathers at all. So uh, 
Like, and he has like meal plans. You're supposed to make meals. And for that, I feel a lot of pressure on that. So all week, um, I want to say Alex and I, but like, just to be honest, Alex was prepping meals all week and testing them. Like literally two days in the week, she woke up at 5 a.m. to like put in meat in a thing so it could like simmer for five hours or whatever. So like there was a lot of pressure on this week just for the meals, which I thought would be the biggest problem. So for so for this cottage, you get meal assignments. So then like if you go up with a couple couples, you'll do mm-hmm. like breakfast one day and lunch another day. So what you're saying is that your wife was prepping these meals in the week leading up to the cottage. <laughs> just to make yeah, sure they like, were good. You- and just like a little back history about me. Like I always say like I was kind of like raised by wolves. <laughs> Your meaning, mom's totally insulted right Meaning now. like, <laughs> not to, I love you mom and dad, but uh, like I never learned how to drive or wash a dish or I never <laughs> mowed the lawn or did laundry. Like no one would ever let me do anything. So even something as rudimentary as washing a dish really stresses me out. Like I don't even know how to wash a dish by hand. I, I didn't even know how to like load a dishwasher up until I, I just bought a home. You know, I'm really like nervous in what anyone else would consider a normal scenario, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, someone cooks a meal, someone washes the dishes. So I'm equally concerned about the meal and the dishes. Anyway, all that stuff goes fine, right? Like we we plan for it. All that goes fine. You practice scrubbing dishes. Alex has my back. She's made sure the meals taste delicious. We we go overboard. The meals go over crazy. Uh, Then in the nighttime, we have a few drinks. I sit by the fire. Of course, the first chair I sit in uh, by the fire, it just smashes. <laughs> just break. I know I've gained a few pounds, but like it was super embar- embarrassing. It just explodes. But Randall's cool that it's not that big of a deal. Rest of the weekend goes by perfectly. Like we killed it. Like Alex is a big hit in social situations like this. I'm thinking I get out of it scot-free. I hug everyone. I go to leave. And... uh just to let you know about Randall's layout. He has a very steep incline to get down to his cottage. So it's like a hill like this. It's almost like a straight drop. But if you have a pretty good car, you can make it down and make it up. Oh, no. Most people park at the top of the hill. But I park down beside Randall's, like, you know, good car that's like a four by four or whatever. That's four wheel drive, yeah. Four wheel drive. So <laughs> one time I went down I there this is going. and Randall's like, uh, you know, hey, you shouldn't have driven your car down here. Don't worry. I'll drive it back up the hill for you. So we're like, okay, good. We're going to the the Walmart to buy um, Alex's mom a gift for her birthday, which is <laughs> what I just came from. So he drives it up the hill. He goes, actually, this car is a shit ton of pep. He's like, this is a peppy car. This car can make it up here fine. So I'm like, oh, sweet. He's like, yeah, just drive it back down when you when you come back from the trip. So I'm like, okay, I drive down the mountain. Uh, I don't even know you, you, you drive. I know. I learned to drive. I got my license when I was 30. This was right after you learned how to do a dish. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this was, uh, no, I learned how to drive right before I learned how to do a dish. But, um, you know, my, my first car oddly was a stick shift. Really? Yeah, it was. I learned how to drive a stick. That's my crazy. friend Bert, actually, uh, like I was friends with a 67-year-old man. <laughs> He's like my best friend. And he taught me how to drive. So anyway, as I'm leaving, I, I wanted to ask Randall, like, oh, what's the key to get up the hill? But he said the car had a lot of pep. So I hug everyone. We just had this great week, like bonded with everyone. I'm like closer to the boss than, than ever. I go to drive up the hill. And as I'm getting up, it gets stuck near the top so we're at the top of the hill basically like with a straight drop going back 
And I'm like, oh shit. But I just put the brake on and I, I go down and back up, back up, back up. But all of a sudden I backed up too far. And now I realize I'm kind of dangling over a cliff. <laughs> so I'm about to teeter and the, the car's about to roll into the cottage. Oh, good. And God. my boss just sold this cottage. Oh. And he just bought like an awesome new cottage. So this was a. Uh, this May two for a weekend was actually a, like a, a sayonara, like farewell to his Randallland. To Randallland, it's yeah. called. So the car is teetering on the edge, about to roll over a couple times, potentially kill me and ruin the cottage. <laughs> so Alex instinctively hops out of her end, which because she's in the passenger seat, which throws the car even more off kilter. And now I'm definitely about to roll over, but luckily, Randall. And all the people see this and they're like, oh shit. And they run out. And then I had to stop the car, put the emergency brake on as they held it from rolling into the cottage. And then, uh, I didn't know this, but the car had like different gears to it and you can put it in like one or two. Yeah. Like, you know what that mode is? And then I put it in one and they all had to push me up the hill and get me out of that scenario. So that was how I left. The thing as everyone was like freaking out as I did that and like so thankful that I didn't ruin the cottage or kill myself. Jeez. So I just came from that right now. So oh. I'm like totally on edge right now. So you feel like this great weekend did not end on the best note? No, it, it, it was uh, it was hugely just embarrassing because like every <laughs> everything went over so well until that. You're wearing a pretty cool pair of jeans that I recognize from... A lot of uh, Facebook posts. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of people are like, uh, a couple people on Facebook are kind of making fun of me for being in the Top Man ad. So let's give some context for this. This is good. So some context. Uh, we went to Coachella. Uh, Top Man was nice enough to sponsor uh, our episodes and our whole weekend down there and get, hook us up with some uh, sweet clothes. We did some photos that we thought were going to be for like uh, we the much Instagram. Sure. Yeah, we, we it was like the much Instagram, uh-huh. the, like a much Instagram, maybe the top man Insta or something like that. We were kind of it was very loose. Everything was moving so quick, and we're kind of like just going. Cool. It happened last minute. Like, oh, by the way, the, you, you guys got a sponsor. We're like, oh, sweet, this yeah. is great. I'm literally about to fly to Manitoba to do the shoot that I'm doing, mm-hmm. and I look in the Champagne Boys group. My brother screen grabs a top man ad, like an actual, just legitimate top man ad, and it's the three of us walking through <laughs> desert. Like assholes in the clip, and I was like, "But oh. there's there's no mention of the pod. It was it was like we were just the three hired models. No context. <laughs> so do you, do you think that's awesome or not cool? Or the vain part of me cool? thinks it's kind of awesome. We were like, <laughs> could we be models? You know, well, it's I, like we're not here because we're like you know affiliated with anything else. Well, Alex, uh, her ex boyfriend messaged her and was like, "What the?" And like, oh, sent, really? screen grabbed a picture of me in these top man ads. Imagine if these ads are what rekindled their relationship. That'd just be weird. But yeah, it's it's funny. Like people kind of think we have a modeling gig. Yeah, which is kind of sweet. And it, it's on Top Man's real Instagram, I think. They're paying for ads that are yeah, they're, up like in they're places. showing up. Ads are showing up in my feed on Facebook regularly. But uh, anyway, it's cool. You know, what do you think of it? Are you are you stoked about your new? You know? I'm a little shaken up right now, man. <laughs> <laughs>
that's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. Mike on Much podcast uh, can be found on Twitter and Instagram. That was a weird way of saying it. <laughs> Mike on Much is our handle. You can download. Please subscribe to the show. Leave a comment. <laughs> <laughs> Shane is just muttering into himself right now. <laughs> Eating crackers and muttering. Um, please leave a comment uh, and a rating in iTunes because that really helps the show grow. Huge thank you to Jenna Gregory who provides the artwork. You can check out her stuff at jennasdoodles.com. The Mike and Watch Podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I'm your host, Mike Gehrman. See you next week.